From Asia Society Switzerland, this is State of Asia. I'm Rem Potanis. In this episode, we take you to the Solomon Islands. The island nation in the South Pacific is gearing up to host its biggest event ever, the 2023 Pacific Games. That's the official song of the Games. It will see 5,000 athletes from 24 Pacific countries compete in 24 sports across venues mostly built with aid from China. Not too long ago, the Solomon's Prime Minister Sogavare and the Chinese ambassador officially opened the National Stadium, the main venue for the Games, entirely built by China. Here's the Prime Minister addressing the Chinese ambassador at that occasion. I cannot thank your government enough for this is wonderful, wonderful day to the people of the I cannot thank you and your government enough, the Prime Minister said. And according to this report from Chinese state media, the 700,000 Solomon Islanders couldn't be more grateful to China for building infrastructure, a hospital wing, a university building, and enough Huawei mobile antennas to cover the spread out island nation with the most reliable cell network it has ever had. Infrastructure development is picking up pace in Honiara, the capital of Solomon Islands. Many locals are expressing their gratitude, saying they have significantly benefited from China-built projects, among which is the 2023 Pacific Games Stadium project. It is something that we Solomon Islanders will appreciate and are grateful for. In the past, we don't have any facility of this magnitude. Built by China Civil Engineering Construction Limited, the new stadium serves as the venue for the 2023 Pacific Games, which will be hosted by Solomon Islands later this year. The project employs as many as over 700 locals who have also received training courses to enhance their skills and expertise. China's generosity kicked into high gear after Solomon's Prime Minister Sogavare in 2019, to the surprise of pretty much everyone, switched his country's allegiance from Taiwan to the People's Republic as being the true China. Last year, Solomon Islands signed a security pact with Beijing, of which details remain unknown. This deal could allow China to gain a military foothold in the South Pacific. The United States and other powers have since stepped up their engagement with the Solomons and other Pacific Island nations. Earlier this year, the US reopened its embassy in the Solomon Islands, which had been closed 30 years ago. Recently, it also announced the opening of brand new embassies into other Pacific nations, the Cook Islands and Niue. Earlier this year, here at Asia Society Switzerland, we spoke with two Solomon Islanders about what it's like to live in a country that's on one of the front lines of the great power competition between the US and China. How does it feel to have the world's most powerful countries compete for your affection? Do people in the Solomons actually profit? We wanted to replay some of that conversation today, as the Solomon Islands are really getting ready now to put on their greatest show ever, and as competition between China and the US in the Pacific and elsewhere has continued to intensify over the past year. You'll hear from Dorothy Wickham, a highly experienced journalist from the Solomons and a trusted voice on all things happening in the Pacific, and from Jay Bartlett, a leading entrepreneur from the island nation who has led the country's Chamber of Commerce for eight years and is a member of the board of the Central Bank. 
For this conversation, they spoke with Simona Grano, Associate Professor at the University of Zurich, an expert on China and Taiwan, and frequent contributor to events at Asia Society Switzerland. Simona starts by asking Jay what the impact of hosting the Pacific Games is on the ground in the Solomon's capital, Honiara. This November, Solomon Islands will host the Pacific Games with about 5,000 athletes from 24 countries. This is the biggest sporting event that the country has ever hosted. And in a previous conversation with us, you actually said that we should compare uh, this to the impact that hosting the Olympics has on bigger countries, for instance. What you meant, of course, is that these always come with a lot of new infrastructure and building projects, right? So can you tell us a little bit how and if these games are changing the face of Oniara and what kind of opportunities does hosting the Pacific Games actually bring for local companies, construction companies, but also for local people? It's probably similar to an advanced nation hosting the Olympics uh, for us in Honiara. Um, I mean, I think broadly in terms of the timing, the games has been good. Um, and, and that's in a sense where it offers a, a focal point for our development and it gives us a time that things should be done. So we know in November this this year, uh, we're going to be hosting um, the, the Pacific Games and showcasing our nation. And, and that gives us a, a sense of urgency about how we uh, go about our business every day. Um, in, in terms of the impact for local construction companies, I would probably say that the impact is is mixed. There's definitely a lot of construction happening in Honiara. So if you if you travel to Honiara at the moment, that's definitely one thing that will will hit you, and that's one thing that you'll you'll notice is there's a lot of building, and there's a lot of construction happening. But a lot of construction that is happening at the moment is is bilateral aid, and so these type of projects generally go back to large contractors. Uh, they bring a lot of their own workers and they mobilize and build um, these big, big projects. Uh, so there's not much, I guess, that is shared into the local economy. We have uh, local construction workers, but a lot of them, in my opinion, are only providing labor, unskilled labor. And so there's minimum skills and knowledge transfer in this process. And, and and I think we should probably look at the way that, you know, aid is delivered, especially for infrastructure. And it really should be multidimensional. So there should be benefit of the infrastructure itself that's built. That's mm -hmm. something that we're really grateful for as a country. But we should also be in the process developing our, our capability and capacity, you know. Otherwise, you know, it's a really a big missed opportunity and I think one way that, you know, we can make this happen is through policy and legislation, because if there's no policy or legislation to ensure that local contractors and the local economy is involved, it's left to best endeavors. And when it's left to best endeavors, it probably won't happen. There has to be a deliberate framework that's put in place that ensure that these benefits are downstreamed. So, I mean, I think you know, I think we'd like to see more happen in terms of the workflow into local businesses. Um, but I guess due to the nature of the funding and due to the scale of these projects, um, that hasn't been probably um, as much as we have liked. And as we're getting close to the games now, I think the government's just really focused on ensuring that the games are hosted successfully. So it's just all about making sure that things are delivered on time at the moment.
So China uh, is quite busy as well in the run-up to the games that we just talked about with Jay. It is actually building seven venues, including the National Stadium, which can hold up to 10,000 spectators. And we know that China's Huawei is also putting up cell towers, more or less 160 ones of those, all throughout the Solomon Islands. And China is also financing the construction of a new wing at the country's main hospital and several more things that we can talk about with you, Dorothy, if you want. But that brings us to the reason why the Solomon Islands started making the headlines across the world, namely what we hinted at during the introduction, China's increased activities in the country and the worry this creates in Australia, in the US and in their allied partners. Countries, for example, like Australia and the US were shocked in 2019 when the Solomon's Prime Minister Sogavara announced that the country would no longer recognize Taiwan or ROC, its official name, but Beijing as the real China. And this immediately opened up the gates of Chinese aid and investment to the Solomon Islands. So the decision to switch allegiances from Taipei to Beijing actually baffled many in the West, especially when in May last year, Solomon Islands once again was in the spotlight because it signed a security deal with China, which could allow Beijing to station troops on the island and thus give China de facto a military foothold in the South Pacific. And now I come to the question for you, Dorothy. You wrote an article in the New York Times and you wrote, can you blame us for turning to China? Can you tell us what you wrote in that piece? And maybe also what were your arguments regarding to the situation? Well, I was I was um, reflecting on, on how... Solomon Islanders and maybe our leaders were thinking at the time, uh, as as Jay had said, you know, th- this country we we've really struggled to get ourselves, you know, positioned amongst the other Pacific Island countries. And and if you land here in Honiara, you'll see there's an absolute difference in the look. Even just uh, from the airport down mm-hmm. into Honiara, you'll see there's a big difference if you land in the other cities in the Pacific. And I think there's that sense of urgency. I think that that's what I was trying to say in the article. There's a sense of urgency amongst our political leaders who wanted change, they wanted growth, and they wanted it fast. And they wanted it during their term while they're sitting in in power. And also we have a huge youth population who were also getting impatient and and saying, you know, the government wasn't doing anything. Our hospital is, is the same hospital we've had for the last, what, 20, 30 years, and our roads are the same. You know, so it, it's that that sense of frustration, that same sense of feeling of being left behind, uh, I think was one of the driving keys uh, towards our, our government making that decision. Of course, there are other reasons why, but I, I'm I'm talking about what was in the mindset of Solomon. As you know, Solomon Islanders were quite shocked when this switch happened because nobody was expecting it. We had seen a signboard go up um, where the, the current uh, stadium is now that had a picture of a stadium with a Taiwanese flag on it. And that said that the stadium that was going to be built there would be built by the Taiwanese. And then how many months later, it got pulled down. And I was wondering, why is that thing gone down? And then suddenly we switched. And and if you compare to what China is building now to what Taiwan was, was uh, intending to build, there's a big, huge difference in terms of size. And also now that you can sense there's a feeling on the ground here that things are happening, you know, the Japanese are fixing our roads. I mean, it's a really bad attitude to have that we're expecting always to be to be fixed by our donors. It's not a good psyche, but that, that's what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. And in my article, I was trying to say this is what was going on before this mm-hmm. switch. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I mean, Mr. Sogovare, he's been in power for quite a while now. 
and he's going, he's, he's getting older. And I think he also has a sense of frustration in the way his the other donor partners are dealing with government and, and the way um, assistance is given to the Solomons. You know, we've had very, deep, uh, very hard uh, times trying to even uh, get export out of this country. It's absolutely clear. It's very hard to get export into Australia, even though we're only three hours flight away. So there's so many requirements. I mean, I understand that there's, there are national issues for Australia itself in terms of quarantine and all this other stuff. But it's hard to explain, Simona. Sometimes I talk about this and I, I pause because I think now we're sounding like we're asking too much of, 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 of our friends. But then, like I said, because of that, that's why we were we uh, that's why we are now discussing China basically. No, I think you did a good job in expressing the sense of frustration of being uh, the feeling of being left left alone basically, right? To fend off for yourself among so many difficulties. Let me briefly come back to you, Jay. Uh, you were until last year the chairman of the National Chamber of Commerce. Can you tell me what's the impact on the Solomon Solomon's business community and on in general Solomon Islanders of being wooed by multiple powers simultaneously? Do do just do people actually profit or is it just more infrastructure building and just a few elite profiting? I think we need to probably just go back to COVID uh, and lead into this discussion because I guess when the borders closed and international borders closed, you know, our economy really took a big, big hit. Um, like like many of the Pacific um, Islands, uh, we all suffered. Uh, I guess uh, everyone around the globe did. I'm on the central bank and our data showed that, you know, we had negative 3.4% growth in 2020, we came up to uh, negative 0.6 growth in 2021, and then we are negative 3.7% growth in 2022. But in 2023, this year, we're forecasted to come up into positive 2.4% growth. And the, the reason we're coming out into positive growth, part of the reason is because of the infrastructure spend that is happening um, in our country. And so we, we've been quite fortunate that there's been a large pipeline of infrastructure for the Solomon Islands. It's not just bilateral aid, so not just geopolitical aid, this is multilateral aid as well. So we've got a big project like the Tina Hydro, which is a renewable energy project that's happening at the moment. The Japanese, this is bilateral aid, are funding an international uh, airport upgrade, and they're also upgrading the uh, East Honiara Road. So that's been happening as well. The a a Asian Development Bank, ADB, has funded a university upgrade. And plus, we've got all the uh, Pacific Games facilities, which is funded by China. This infrastructure spend has really helped us all. Um, there's, there's also definitely a number of factors of why the economy is to ensure that the money that's spent in the economy on aid you know, comes back down into local businesses. And a lot of it is spent in the local economy as well, as much as we can. You know, we've got uh, our traditional partners like Australia. Uh, they've also got their own infrastructure program. So I don't think there's real direct benefit at the moment, but I think over time, we should be able to see this create more long-term economic growth. And then hopefully that in turn improves the livelihood of our people. Dorothy, um, let's change a little bit the subject and talk about something that is also very often uh, in the media or under the media spotlight concerning not just the Solomon Islands, but in general, Pacific nations, global warming. So we know that sea levels around Solomon Islands are the fastest rising on Earth and Calais Island, part of the Solomon Islands, is one of the first islands in the world to actually disappear because of climate change. It is now completely underwater. And last year, when the BBC interviewed a young woman from the island, what she said, and I quote her, our country doesn't contribute that much to the emission of greenhouse gases and global warming, and yet we are the ones facing the destruction arising from it. 
This is something that people from Western countries did to us. We are facing the consequences of what others have done. So my question for you would be, what are the real, on top of the entire island being submerged, but what are some of the concrete on the grounds effect that you notice from this and how are the people dealing with it, but also what is the government doing to address these issues? I, I think one of the issues that I, I think that we have here is there are only a few of us educated people who know what the issues are and the the cause and effects later on for us in the future. But I think a lot of, I'd say about 70% or 60% of ordinary Solomon Islanders who are living out there are not really focusing on it because to them, they've watched it slowly rise up. They've adjusted to it. They, you know, they've tried to ensure that they've moved to higher ground with their gardening. They've changed their water sources. So, so, so they've adjusted or they've adapted to what's happened. But the, the clear understanding of why and the politics of it, the international debate on it, that is very much lacking on the ground amongst ordinary Solomon Islanders. And I think this also is a problem for us because I'll go back to what Jay was saying about all the infrastructure being built and we'll have to wait to see what would be the benefits that would, would um, come out of all these improvements. But I keep saying this and I've been saying this for the last 10 years, if we do not improve education levels in this country, then we are totally going to be left behind. And this is our biggest problem in this country, is that we really need to make education compulsory and we really need to raise the basic level of education for us to be able to, to debate, to discuss and plan for the future in terms of global warming, when we're talking um, the economy, when we're looking at the geopolitical issues of this country, there's only a few people talking. 2% are fluent in English. Isn't that representative of how many people are educated to that level that are able to, to maybe discuss issues like maybe Jay and I and, and other people? So, I, I mean, the, this, this is the fundamental issue. I really feel strongly about this, that education is the key. Now, if we want to change anything, whether it's to do with global warming and our choices in politics, our development issues, our economy, it has to come back down to education. You know, I, I, I would have really loved to see the millions of dollars being poured into these Pacific Games, being poured into our education uh, infrastructure and, and development. But of course, we voted our leaders in. They are the ones who are, who are ruling. They are the ones who are making the decisions. And they, they chose... Pacific Games. In the Solomons, a classroom is born every day. So there's roughly 30 to 40 children that are born every day. And and that in itself is not an issue, but it is an issue if you're not building one or two classrooms every day. And <laughs> I think structurally, we have not invested in the last 30 years in the infrastructure we need to cater for this population explosion that we're seeing now. We, we certainly haven't been building one or two classrooms for the last decade, as far as I know. And so we have a large number of young children and we don't have enough schools. I think that's probably, you know, quite uh, one of the obvious ones in terms of access to education. There have been several multiple occasions in the past in which the Chinese community locally was targeted in violent unrest. For example, in 2006, uh, much of Honiara's Chinatown was destroyed after allegations surfaced that the prime minister had used money from Chinese business people to bribe members of the parliament, and that large sums of money uh, were being funneled to China. Beijing evacuated citizens from the Solomons back then, and three years later, um, and uh, 13 years later in 2019, after the Solomon switch from uh, Taipei to Beijing, Chinatown was looted again. 
So in November 2021, Chinese settlers who own many of the small retail outlets in Honiara were again the targets of rioters. So my question for you would be, what is behind is, is there, we always talk about Chinese influence in the scale of, uh, you know, global geopolitics, security issues and influence on the country. But is there also on the grounds at the level of the population, resentments targeted against Chinese presence on the islands or, or how would you see this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think to be honest, there's probably a, a you know, a few underlying issues that contribute, you know, to the, the unrest. And just like any issue, it's, you know, it's, it's quite complex. But I guess there are a few fundamentals for me that are really important when we discuss this. And, you know, and one of these things, you know, Dorothy has shared and, you know, me, myself as a young Solomon Islander, which, you know, I, I have concern about is, is the population. We have 70% under 30, and that's a very, very large youth bulge. And if you look at unemployment around the country, you know, you've got a young population and you've got high unemployment. So we've got a, a fast growing population and we've got large unemployment. It can go two ways. We can have a demographic dividend if we utilize this population properly and we're able to create jobs. It's a good thing. You know, we can drive economic growth with our young population. But if we don't have jobs and opportunities, then what we have is a demographic time bomb. And I think what we see every now and then happening is this time bomb just letting off a little bit of steam. We also have growing inequality, income inequality. You know, we have a foreign minority. Yes, we have a, a Chinese population in the Solomon Islands and they dominate the, the retail business front. There is going to be growing resentment regardless of the race. I think there is going to be growing resentment. And we have also local businessmen, Chinese businessmen, you know, sometimes that take advantage of weak institutions and that just furthers this resentment. You know, there is probably a number of factors that contribute to social instability and unrest. But when you have a dry box of firewood, you know, any spark can, can, can light start it. the fire. Despite whatever we say and we do and whether China's here or not, China's building huge infrastructure, pouring huge money to this country. This country is a democratic country. That's the basic baseline. And and, and China must also realize that if they have they, they, if they have to deal with us and deal with us properly, then they, they, go, they have to understand that, that our, our institutions must be protected. The government that sits in power now that they are friends with was elected in. What if tomorrow people change their mind? Because of frustrations about what government's doing, then it'll change the whole picture again. China is, of course, as we know, not only providing infrastructure to the Solomon Islands, but also armament, for example, for the local police forces, right? Mainly for riot control. How does the local population interpret this? Does, does it think that it is making the situation safer in case of future riots? Or are there actually worries that this could actually add fuel to the situation? I mean, I, I think it's probably a combination of both. I think it might add fuel to the fire. And at the same time, you know, it, it is about trying to kind of manage these social situations that uh, get out of hand uh, every now and then. So I guess it's it's hard to know the intention behind that. Uh, but certainly, you know, security has become more front and center, a concern about the government, um, especially in making decisions that are not always popular. You know, you, it, they could be preparing for some of these decisions that have been made. That's all for this special edition of State of Asia. Hear more from Simona Grano, who is also a senior fellow at Asia Society Policy Institute's Center for China Analysis, in our next episode. 
She'll discuss the dimensions of cross-strait relations between Taiwan and mainland China and talk about Taiwan's presidential elections taking place in January of next year. Search for State of Asia in your favorite podcast app and be sure to subscribe. The entire conversation with Dorothy Wickham and Jay Bartlett on the Solomon Islands is available as a video on our website. A link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We're always open to your feedback and ideas, so drop us a line. Send an email to Switzerland at asiasociety.org. Information on our many other activities, like our upcoming flagship State of Asia conference, taking place November 22nd in Zurich, are on our website, asiasociety.org slash Switzerland. My name is Rem Kotanis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>